Today's sermon comes from Galatians 5, 1 through 15. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one that is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. For if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. In the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia, there is this special display of a tiny little rickety homemade aluminum kayak. And it stands very much out of place, or it seems very odd in this museum that is surrounded by uh, Navy vessels and artifacts from major battles. And yet the plaque underneath this little rickety boat tells why it's there, and it tells the story. In 1966, an auto mechanic named Loriano and his wife, Consuelo, decided that they were no longer going to sit underneath the totalitarian regime of Cuba. And so over several months, they scrapped together, they collected a bunch of scrap metal, and they made this tiny little aluminum kayak. And then Loriano, uh, who was an auto mechanic, uh, jerry-rigged a small lawnmower engine and put it on the back of it. And in September of 1966, with only bathing suits on and some food and water, for about two days, they got in this boat and they set out into the treacherous straits of Florida. About 70 hours later, the U.S. Coast Guard spotted them just south of the Florida Keys and picked them up and brought them back to the United States. Years later, they, they asked Loriano if it was worth the risk to find freedom. And this is what he said. When one has grown up in liberty, you realize it is important to have freedom. We lived in the enormous prison, which is Cuba, where one's life is not worth one crumb, where one goes out into the street and does not know whether or not one will return to one's home because the political police can arrest you without any warning and put you in prison. Before this could happen to us, we thought that going into the ocean and risking death or being eaten by sharks is a million times better than to stay suffering under political oppression. Now, when we think about freedom, that's one of the types of freedom 
that we get our hands around. In fact, the reason that this couple came to the United States is because this is the land of the free. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of assembly. We have freedom to vote. Right? Americans prize freedom. But sociologist Robert Bella says that actually what Americans prize the most, and I would agree with this, is personal freedom. Listen to what he says. Freedom is perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value. Yet freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others, not having other people's values, ideas, or styles of life forced upon one, being free of arbitrary authority in work, family, and political life. What we really want is freedom to be left alone. And that's the wrong kind of freedom. So the question is, what is the freedom that you actually need? Because the freedom of being left alone is the understanding that freedom is the absence of constraints. That's how we typically define freedom. And yet Jesus... The gospel, Paul here, defines freedom in a completely different way. It's not freedom, or it's not absence of constraints, it's finding the right constraints. So what kind of freedom do you need? John Stott says it well. He says, the best and truest freedom is freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and others. What kind of freedom do you need? First, you need freedom from self. You need freedom from loving self. And that's where Paul starts in verse one, when he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What is the yoke of slavery? Ultimately, the yoke of slavery is slavery to self. And Paul's going to explain in this passage two forms of self-love, two forms of slavery to self. He's going to define a legalistic self-love, and he's going to define a licentious self-love, and I'll define those. But let's start first with the legalistic form of self-love. Verses two to four, there's three verses in a row where Paul lays out the either-or nature of works and grace. He is emphatically, repeatedly saying three times in a row in three verses that works and grace are an either-or when it comes to salvation. You can't have both. It's not a mix and match. So he starts in verse two. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He says, if you accept circumcision, right, as a means to get right with God, then it's like signing a contract that says, I am going to obtain righteousness by what I do by my works. It's signing a contract that says, yes to me, no to Christ. Christ won't and can't be of any help to you if you sign that contract, Paul says. And in this case, in this context, it was accepting circumcision. Then he says in verse three, 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Paul says, if you accept circumcision and therefore seek to obtain righteousness by following the law and by doing what's right, then you're obligated to keep the entire law perfectly. There's no grace. You got to keep it perfectly by what you do. Then verse four, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You, you who are seeking to be justified or counted righteous by the law, you're severed from Christ. You're cut off from Christ. It's either or. It's either works or it's either grace. It's like sky jumping on your own versus sky jumping tandem on someone's back. When you're in the plane, you gotta make a decision. If you decide to jump out of the plane on your own, then you are responsible to st stabilize yourself as you fall from the plane. You're responsible to pull the ripcord at the right time. You're responsible to land the jump. There's no jumping back and forth as you're falling from the plane on your own tandem, on your own tandem. If you jump from the plane on your own, then you've got to land the jump. In the same way, if you jump from the plane tandem, you are trusting the person on whose back you're laying on to stabilize you as you fall. You're, you're trusting that person to pull the ripcord at the right time. You're trusting that person to land the jump. Again, if you go tandem and you don't go back and forth, it's either or. And what Paul has been saying up to this point, that if you jump from the plane on your own, you're really jumping without a parachute. You're not going to land alive because you cannot keep the law perfectly. You cannot. It is absolutely impossible. You can't obtain righteousness that way. So seeking to be justified or counted righteous by God's law is what we would call legalism. And that is simply a dependence on legal, dependence on the law to find righteousness. And Paul says, this is actually the first form of self-love. This is the first form of self-love because your actions are motivated by getting something from God. You're trying to obtain righteousness from God. You're trying to do the right things in order to consume something from God to secure your standing before God and before others. So inherently, it is, a, it is an act of self-love is what legalism is. It is a self-centeredness. Now, this, this form of love can be hard to detect. And here's why. You can have two people sitting in church next to each other who have almost identical outward behaviors. They both go to church on Sunday morning. They both go to a midweek Bible study or a small group or a community group. Right? Uh, they both, for the most part, most mornings wake up, read their Bible and pray, right? I, I, almost identical, and yet they can be doing it for radically different reasons. One can be doing it to secure a standing before God or attempting to secure a standing before God. 
One can be doing it to, to secure a standing before others, a reputation before others. The other can be doing it out of love for God and love for others. You see, one can be absolutely, completely enslaved to self. The other can be absolutely free from self to love God. Same behaviors, completely different motivation. And so legalism that Paul has been addressing is a form of self-love, albeit a religious form of self-love. Now, the other form of love, self-love, that he describes in this passage is a lot easier to detect. This is the licentious form, right? And by licentious, all we mean is license to do what you want, right? License to live how you want, do what you want. He describes it in verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, what is flesh? Paul's not just talking about your skin, your physical body. It certainly includes that. But what he's talking about is flesh is the part of you that does not want to submit to God or follow his ways. That flesh is the part of you that does not want to submit to God or to follow his ways. And so what he's saying is, don't allow your flesh that doesn't want to submit to God to use your freedom in Christ as a beachhead to launch a spiritual attack against you. Now let me explain what that means. So your flesh wants pleasure. Your flesh wants comfort. Your flesh wants approval. Your flesh want, wants a good reputation. Your flesh wants um, control. Your flesh wants security. But your flesh is going to get all of that apart from God because it doesn't want to submit to God. So it will seek anything in the world, a person, a thing, whatever it may be, to get that. And the way that, that your flesh can launch an attack against you using freedom in Christ can go something like this. It's been an incredibly, if your flesh could speak, you've had such an incredible hard week, hard work, work, uh, hard week at work, okay? Incredibly hard work week. Your, your boss mistreated you, made you work incredibly long hours. You're tired. Like you, listen, Friday night, you have every right to go out and to just cut loose and forget about it all. You Listen, you're free in Christ. You've been forgiven, but man, your week's been so hard. Just go out and, and, and get drunk and enjoy some pleasure. It's, it's okay. That's an example, okay, of, of your flesh using your freedom in Christ right, to launch a spiritual attack against you. Right? That, that's how that dynamic would work. Now, what I want you to see is the similarities between legalism and licentiousness. We've just pre presented two, or Paul's presenting two forms of self-love, and I want you to see how similar they are. This is so critical to get. Again, you can have one person or two people, this is the opposite, having drastically different behaviors, but the exact same motivation. You can have one person who is going to church every Sunday, 
You can have one person who is going out every Friday night with coworkers and getting drunk, and they can have the exact same motivation. And that motivation is to secure a standing before others. You can, you can secure a standing before others religiously. You can secure a standing before others irreligiously. You can do it by sitting in church on a Sunday. You can do it by sitting in a bar on Friday night. It's the same motivation. There are two forms of self-love because both of those are attempts at self-rescue. I am going to rescue myself. I'm going to obtain my righteousness before God. I am going to obtain a righteousness or a reputation before others. I'm going to do it. And it, and it takes place in two ways that look drastically different, but they're identical at a heart level. Paul says, you need freedom. You need freedom from self, from loving self. Even these two different versions of it, they're exactly the same. You're enslaved to self and you need freedom. So what kind of freedom do you need? Freedom from loving self, from addiction to self, to freedom to love others. To freedom to love others. Again, we talk about uh, freedom being an absence of constraints. It's not an absence of constraints. It's finding the right constraints. The right constraints that will enable you to love others. Now, freedom to love others. We're going to look at the source of that freedom and the expression of that freedom. So first, the source of this freedom to love others. Look at verse five. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness here is the hope of a favorable verdict at the last judgment. It's the hope for a favorable verdict. And if you're in Christ, if you've trusted Christ, then that not guilty verdict is realized now. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he took your guilty verdict and he gave you his not guilty verdict. And the reason why this is so freeing is that you don't have to spend a lifetime trying to obtain a not guilty verdict that that's realized now in Christ. And so you're free from having to try to obtain that verdict. You don't have to secure your standing before God. Jesus has done it for you. You're free from that. It's, it's back to the skydiving illustration, right? You're eagerly awaiting and you're confident of a safe landing because you're skydiving in tandem. And the person that you're with has done it numerous times and can land the jump. You're trusting in him. And so you no longer have to live your life trying to obtain a not guilty verdict. It's realized now in Christ. And this is what Paul's saying in verse six. Look at verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Circumcision and legalism are slavery. Uncircumcision and licentiousness are slavery. Paul says they're both slavery. It's only faith in Jesus Christ 
that brings freedom because Christ purchases you out of your slavery. You no longer have to live your life trying to secure a standing before God. You no longer have to live your life trying to secure a standing before others. You are free from that. So if that's the source of freedom, faith in Christ, what's the expression look like? What's the expression look like? End of verse six, but only faith working through love. And then look at verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how in the world can Paul tell us to fulfill the law after he has spent four chapters condemning the law? This is actually, on the surface, appears incredibly contradictory. He spent four chapters saying, you're no longer under the law. Jesus has, has redeemed you from the law, from being under the law. You're free. And now he says, now I want you to fulfill the law. You go, wait a minute, Paul, have you lost your mind? Are you turning back on what you spent four chapters talking about? What's Paul getting at here? Clearly, he's not contradicting anything. What's happening here is you're seeing that God's law has different uses. God's law has different uses. The first and primary use of God's law, as we've seen in the first four chapters, is to drive you to Christ, to show you that you can't measure up, you can't keep the law. It's to drive you to Christ, your need for a Savior. But once you come to Christ and once you place faith in Christ, the law actually becomes a guide to teach you how to live life, how to love God and how to love others. It becomes a guide. See, before Christ, the law is over us, threatening to punish us if we don't obey. But once we're in Christ, the law is no longer over us, the law is under us as a guide for how to live. Or you could say it this way, the law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us, right? The law, if you're in Christ, the law is the road which guides you, not the rod that drives you. One way to illustrate this different use of the law that Paul's getting at here is to compare God's law to a pair of ice skates. What is, so when you think about ice skates as a mode of transportation, right, what determines how effective a pair of ice skates is or are for a, as a mode of transportation? Well, it depends on where you use them, right? So a pair of ice skates are pretty awkward and pretty useless on grass, or they're pretty useless on asphalt. Right, the, the, the ice skates become useful where? On a skating rink or on a frozen pond, on ice. What Paul, is, what Paul is saying here is that before you come to Christ, you can't use the law or you can't use God's law to please him because you're enslaved to self. And if you try to use it to please him, you'll do one of two things. You, you will you will try to 
do everything you can, right, following his law to obtain righteousness. You're trying to get something from him. It's still self-focused. Or if you give up on that because it's too hard, then you'll just reject his law and go to licentiousness and do whatever you want. The point is that God's law outside of Christ is like a pair of ice skates on grass or on asphalt. But once you are in Christ, once Christ has fulfilled the law for you and you've received righteousness from God and you no longer have to secure your standing before God or before others, now God's law becomes like a pair of ice skates in an ice rink. It guides you on how to love others It guides you in how to love in the freedom of the Spirit. In the freedom of the Spirit. So the expression of the freedom that Christ brings is the law of God. Now, what's the summary of the law? Well, Paul explains it in verse 14. He sums up the whole law in one word or one phrase, says, you shall love your neighbor." as yourself. This has always been the summary of God's law. In fact, Paul quotes here from Leviticus 19:18, the 10 commandments is a summary of love God, love neighbor. The first 4 are love God, the last 6 are love neighbor. In Matthew 22, the the lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, "Hey Jesus, what's the most important or the greatest commandment in the law?" And Jesus responds with this, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Moses, Jesus, and Paul all agree. The summary of God's law is love God, love neighbor. Now, why does Paul, when he sums it up here, exclude the first great commandment to love God? He just talks about loving neighbor as the summary of God's law. Well, that's because he's spent the first four chapters describing what it means to love God, right? That you, you can't use the law to please God or to earn something from God. It's impossible, he says. So Christ has, has redeemed you from that, has fulfilled the law for you, right? So that you can actually now, freed from self, use the law to actually love God and love neighbor, right? So he's already addressed that in four chapters. And now he adds this, the summary, love God and now love neighbor. This is, you know, Paul in other writings gets after this, what it means to serve one another, what it means to love one another. In Philippians, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, right? Love one another. Look to the interests of others. And apparently what we see here in the Galatian church, when you look at verses seven to 12, is that they, they were not loving one another well. There were these false teachers who had come in, these Jewish Christian missionaries that came in that were disrupting things. Paul describes it in, in verses seven to 12. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He wishes these false teachers would emasculate themselves. I mean, Paul's hot. He's not happy. Why? Because look at verse 15. 
But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. They weren't loving each other. This church that, that Paul had planted and preached and, and, and seen come about had turned to division and biting and backstabbing and arguing. Paul says, no. Now, what caused this? What caused this community of Galatians to turn from loving one another to biting and devouring one another? Well, again, it's the entire first four chapters of this letter, but it is succinctly described in chapter three, verse three. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, the problem in Galatia is that they had gone from the Spirit, living according to the Spirit. Talked about it several weeks ago. Divine intervention, dependence on the Spirit, to dependence on self. They had turned into performance Christianity. Self-reliance. Not dependent on the Spirit, dependent on the flesh. And in that self-reliance, guess what happened? They just started eating each other up. I did a wedding last night, and I gave the most sophisticated example and illustration that you could give at a wedding, at a beautiful ceremony, everyone's dressed up, and I talked about two ticks. You know, a tick that's on your leg is really happy and is flourishing. He's got an endless supply of food because he's attached to something greater. But when, when a tick or when two ticks attached to each other, there's a limited supply. And they will suck each other dry. And that is what happens, and that's what happened in Galatia when you move from spirit to flesh, when you're functionally living self-reliance, guess what happens? Your human love runs out really quickly. And if you're married, you're going, yes, amen. You just start sucking each other dry. That's what was happening in Galatia as these false teachers were turning them from their freedom in Christ and the Holy Spirit to flesh and dependence on self and self-reliance. You see, love is a fruit. Love is a fruit. Faith in Christ is the root. Faith produces love. Faith in Christ produces love. Love doesn't produce faith. Faith is the root in Christ that produces love. That's why Paul says in verse six, faith working through love. I love that description. It says that faith is working. That faith is not this one-time transaction when Christ takes your sin and you receive his righteousness, a profession of faith. No, faith is active. It's dynamic. It's working. And faith is that instrument that attaches you to Christ so that his endless supply of love can flow into you and into others. So here's the, the litmus test, I would call it, that you have to ask yourself. If your relationships, marriage, family, friendships, working relationships, are marked increasingly by tension in arguing an abiding spirit, then what is happening is that you are functionally moving away from 
a dynamic faith in Christ to dependence on self, right? That as you move away from dependence on Christ, the spirit of Christ that lives in you, and towards self-reliance, your relationships will be marked by biting and devouring. That's what was happening in the Galatian church. If faith is working itself out, here's another way to say it. If faith is working itself out in biting and devouring and arguing, then it's not functional faith. Because active, dynamic, functional faith in Christ works itself out in serving and loving one another. You ever seen a 3D movie? You ever gone to a 3D movie? I don't, maybe I'm weird and strange and the only person that does this, but when I'm sitting in a 3D movie, I always take the glasses off at some point because I just want to see what does it look like? What does it look like when I don't have these glasses on? And inevitably, what it looks like is I can still see the movie, but the, you know, the figures are a little bit blurry. Um, it's two-dimensional. It's flat. I'm not as engaged but man, when I put the glasses on, it's awesome. I mean, you know, the, the characters and the objects are coming at you and you're dodging and you're trying to reach out and grab and you're fully engaged. See, faith is merely the instrument that attaches you to Christ. Faith is like the glasses that you put on that attach you to Christ that engage you with Christ. And, and, and when you are actively and dynamically walking with Christ in faith, the world comes alive. The trees are greener. The, the, the flowers are more beautiful. Creation's more amazing. The 12-ounce ribeye steak is more tasty. But more importantly... Your love for your spouse grows deeper. Your love for your children grows wider. Your love for your friends becomes richer. That when faith is working, when it's dynamic, the world comes alive, people come alive. And you love people deeply and richly and you engage with people. Not because you have it in yourself, but because you are functionally, actively, dynamically walking with Jesus Christ and his pulsating love for his people starting with you flows through you. And you can imagine what a community looks like Right? This is why Paul absolutely was about to blow a gasket in Galatia because they started off that way. And then this legalism crept in. Mostly that, he talks about the licentiousness, but mostly that legalism crept into this community. Suddenly they became reliant upon the, upon the flesh and suddenly this beautiful, loving community, selfless towards each other, turned into biting and devouring. Listen, when you're faith in Christ is active and dynamic, and there's a community and a church that's living that way, it is a loving environment. It is a loving community where people are just itching to serve one another. 
the world comes alive through the lens of Christ and through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you sent Christ to set us free. You sent Christ to set us free from ourselves and John Stott said, our little silly selves, that just intense self-centeredness and self-love that turns us inward and away from others, you came to set us free from that, whether it's the religious version of self-love or the irreligious version of self-love. Oh, Father, would you draw us to yourself that our relationship with you, with your son Jesus, would be dynamic and active. And that the result would be that our relationships from marriage to friendships to family to coworkers would not be defined by biting and devouring and nitpicking and arguing, but that it would be defined by love and service. And would you make us a small humble, local expression of your body, Jesus, here at Christ Church East, that kind of community. Because our faith is working. That the instrument of faith that attaches us to you, Jesus, is working. So that your pulsating, passionate love for your creation, your world, your people could flow through us. No, Father, in Christ set us free from the love of self to love others. And would you help us in our unbelief to believe you, Jesus, actively and functionally. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.